been doing all these things to talk about what God expects in the home. And uh, it, it is one of those experiences that's kind of a, it's a blessing and a curse because the more you talk about it, the more you feel like you're looking in a mirror. You, you have people on the other side of your desk and you're saying, do this, do this, do this. And the Holy Spirit's going, are you doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this? It's like, well, I did last year. I did last month, but I know what to tell them. So at least I'm smart enough that way. But so the, the point is, is that you spend this time helping people or you say, well, boy, I don't know how they're missing this. It's right there. It's so clear. It's so obvious. But for the most part, it's hard to practice, hard to keep up. But in the course of all of that frustration, though, I've got to say that there is some uh, a room for righteous indignation in the sense that God has made his plans for a household, his plans for a marriage, his plans for parenting, his plans for all the things that come under our roof. He's made his plans very, very clear. And, and for the most part, pretty simple, not easy, but simple. Not overly complicated, not rocket science. And yet, we are always on the defensive, we being Christians, of spelling out that God's principles, that God's plan for society as, it's, as it starts and is founded in the family, is something to be defended, something to over-explain. And the part that's made me frustrated as I've watched this whole thing play out politically and everything is like, what better offers, what better answers has anybody else come up with other than what God's designed for the house? for marriage, for parenting and everything. And so we as Christians have somehow gotten on the defense of saying, well, it really is a good idea. Or it really has worked in the past. The reality is, is that God's the, the author of what marriage is. God is the author of how to raise children. God is the author of all these things. And then the further our society gets away from that, and, and unfortunately the further the church gets pulled along with it, we get, in a, we get in a position where we feel like it's a debate, like somehow both sides need to be weighed out evenly. But, but the weight of success is clearly in God's camp. And so I, I personally have gotten to the point where I'm just tired of having to explain why God's word says what it says. Now, I know that you can't just get away with the whole God says that I believe it and that settles it. I'm not saying that we don't enter into debate or argument. But where has the authority gone? Where has the posture or the position of God's always been right? It's us who have messed up what God wanted. If you want to put a point a finger at somebody, point it at us. But God never veered off course. This was his design from the get-go. And so when it comes to the, the family, when it comes to the way things should work, I mean, if we're being unapologetic, we have to be able to say, look, someone's got to be in charge in various circumstances. Someone's got to be the point person to go to, or else everyone's confused. You know, my twins do this thing where they're only four years old, and so they'll do this thing because now their older siblings can babysit. You know, so if we're leaving the house, or if mom's leaving and I'm behind or something, they're always trying to haggle out, like, who's, they'll say, so who's in charge? That's their question. Who's in charge today? It's kind of like the reminder, well, the parents are always in charge. So whoever we leave with you is in charge by what we've left them to do. So you will still obey. But the point is, is that they're always looking for, so who can I push over here? Because I know your weaknesses and I know your weaknesses. At four years old, they've figured that out. So they always want to know who's in charge so they can start scheming, start plotting their attack. But even they need to know. And they get great comfort. They start to panic if the age of 
who they're left with to them starts feeling like it's getting too young. And we're pretty careful about that. But sometimes, you know, you just got to leave. So here, eight-year-old, you're in charge. You just can't help it all the time. Just kidding. Authorities that are listening, don't nobody show up at my door. But even they start to get a little bit of panic, like who's left here? Like who are we going to rely on if something goes wrong? They're smart enough to realize someone's got to be in charge. It's got to be someone capable. So in a family situation, it's perfectly acceptable. And in fact, it's absolutely appropriate for us to ask God, so who's in charge of this thing? Because someone's got to be. Where all of the answers to those questions have gone wrong, I think, and probably I'm oversimplifying. But where the answer to that question of who's in charge in the household has gone wrong is because there's been an imbalance of authority and responsibility. Where, where sometimes the authority thing starts to tip the scales a little too much. Well, I'm in charge because I'm in charge. All right, so you, you, it's appropriate for us to ask who's in charge, but when the response is, well, I'm in charge because I've been given the title. And that's the attitude that it comes with. Then you have another movement that creeps in saying, well, we're not going to let that happen. But if the other end of the spectrum is outweighed with, well, it's just whoever's going to be the most responsible and authority is kicked out of the window, then it turns into whoever seems to be talented at the time or whoever seems to take the initiative. And then it's this guessing game. Who's really in charge? How's this thing going to work? Where's it going? And so the Lord always wanted to put a balance of title and responsibility in our laps to say, don't let it go to your head, but also don't say, well, someone else will take care of it. Step up and take responsibility. And so if we're thinking about things biblically on the offensive as opposed to like, well, you know, it used to work, this whole who's in charge in the house and who's supposed to be the supporting role and all that kind of stuff. If we go on the offensive a little bit, not obnoxiously so, but in a in a security kind of way where we say, okay, this is what the Lord has deemed necessary and right, and it's worked out when God's people have done it God's way, not when God's people have done it man's way, then we can say, look, the Lord's always had a plan that's worked out. Let's talk about this responsibility thing for just a second. Jesus tells a story about uh, a guy who's going to go away and he has some money to invest. He's going to be gone on a long trip. And he tells three people to take care of just a little bit of his money. And as we uh, were had explained to us last week, you know, the point of a parable isn't so that we get locked in all the details. It's just so that we wait for what's the key point. And we're listening for the, the general story to hear what the key point is. I'll boil it down this way. Jesus has three people and he says, okay, I want you to take, you know, uh, $5,000. I want you to take $2,000 and I want you to take uh, $1,000 or something like that. I'm going to be gone for a while. When I come back, please, please have handled my money appropriately. And so when the master comes back, what he finds is the person that he gave 5,000 bucks for was, was, was um, um, eager but, but cautious to make sure that he could show a return on his master's money. And he doubled the income. And so the master, of course, was very pleased and was like, that was a pretty big risk. I gave you a lot of money, but you still did the right thing with it. Thank you very much. Now I'm $5,000 richer. You were faithful in something small that I gave you. You turned it into something bigger. So therefore, the next time I go away, I'll probably give you 10000 See what you can do with that. So the person with 2000 bucks, he said, I want you to do the same thing. And they went off and they did the same thing, came back and had $4,000. And Jesus, I think, and I'm speculating a little bit, but it's when I'm reading it, I'm going, okay, so what he's showing is not the fact that he's more impressed with the person who had 5000 return into ten than he is with 2000 who was able to return it with four. The point is they did the responsible thing with it and turned it into something 
worthy to be received. And then the, the other person, the last person, freaked out. And he even said, I know that you're a hard person. I know that you're a taskmaster. I know that you've shown you know, your, your sternness in the past. So I didn't want to run the risk of losing it. So I put it in the ground and I packed it down. And so I don't have anything to show for it except for the fact that I didn't lose your money. And so the master says, well, in a sense you did because I expected a return on it that I didn't get. I could have done that. I could have hidden it in, in the dirt myself. And so he condemns that servant as doing the wrong thing. And so as we think about the responsibility of running a household and being someone in charge of the family, if you will, we don't like that phrase, but then I'm going to stick with it for a while. If we start looking at it as like, what has God put in my care that he's eventually going to come back and say, what did you do with it? And we start to have that healthy fear, that healthy trembling. If I better turn this into something more than what he even gave me, we anticipate the master's return with that fear and trembling, but also eager. I can't wait to show him my results. Now, contrast that to what we experience when we raise families today, when we run households. How many of us are eager for the master to return so that we can say, guess what I did with the kids you gave me? Guess what I did with my relationship with my spouse? Guess what I did with the opportunities you gave me, with the finances that came into my household, and all those sorts of things? Guess what I did? You know, from my perspective, and as I even look in the mirror, I'm not always that real, you know, that excited that he might come back. Instead, sometimes I feel like the one who would have buried it in the dirt and said, I don't, could you just give me a little bit more time, please? But where we balance, where we, we need to start balancing this out is if Jesus says you have the authority to run the household or to be in charge, how, how concerned are you about the responsibility of doing a good job? How, how careful are you to make sure that there is a profit? in this, that we're doing the things that the Lord would have us do. So with that in mind, we come to 1 Timothy 3, and I think we're actually going to, please no applause, you'll break my heart, but I think we're going to wrap up the instruction to Timothy to pick elders and overseers with this section. There's a little bit more to go, but I think this is where we're going we're gonna to lob it off here. We come to 1 Timothy 3, and after he's given us a lot of balance, a lot of wisdom, a lot of character, all these things that Paul has said, Timothy, find people loaded up with these things. He then comes to um, a very critical area in verse four. He says he must be one who, and here's the creepy word in today's vernacular, who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. So like I said, Managing a household, you know, we sometimes dub the stay-at-home wives, domestic engineers and stuff like that. We like titles and everything. But if we're looking at what Paul is saying, he says, uh, Paul, Timothy, go, uh, Paul is saying to Timothy, go out and find men who have balance, who have wisdom, who are respectable and everything, and then who also manage their own household well. And thanks be to some movement since the 60s, we just don't like putting that in those terms. Hey, don't tell me the guy's in charge and don't tell me all this sort of stuff. So again, we take human hats off and we say, what did God really intend for this? It's hard for us to wrap our heads around the word manage because we think of it in a business sense. And, and it is similar in some ways to a business. You, in a business, uh, you don't have time to do everyone's job for them. If you're the one in charge, you also can't be the one mopping the floors. Even if you had the skill, even if you had um, you know, the, the, uh, the ability to save the money or something, eventually your job cuts you out of that opportunity to do that. Your time is better spent somewhere else. You'd be a very expensive floor mopper. Also in business, the thing that's similar to, to managing well a household, you'd say, well, 
You can't be the best person for every position. Sometimes our spouses are better at certain things that we're not. Other things that, uh, you know, here's the scary thing. When you start teaching your kids how to do things like mow the lawn and you look and they actually did a better job than when you did it last time. And that hurts your feelings. But at the same time, it's kind of if you're thinking from a management perspective, not lazy. I know what you're reading into what I'm saying. But from a management perspective, you're like, good, I'm training, I'm raising up. They're learning, they're growing. Or you would, you would also say, okay, in some ways it's similar to business in the sense that a leader is the one who has a vision while the worker, the one that's hired to do the work, really is focused in on the task. That's the thing that's before them. They, are, they weren't brought on to think big picture and how do we expand the franchise and all those things. They were brought on to make sure that the floor is clean and that the counters are run smoothly and all that kind of stuff. So they're doing that. And so it's very similar. You can make those comparisons in a family. But where you can't make business comparisons in a family is that your family are not your employees. You can't motivate them by threatening to withhold their paycheck. If you can, you're giving them way too much allowance. But you can't just say, okay, snap to it, hop to it, because I'm the boss, and if you don't do it, you're fired. Sometimes it translates in ways of like, okay, you're out of the house of a certain age or something. You can't go to your friend's house, no more overnights or something like that. But you have to think of other ways to motivate that you can't, uh, that you, that you uh, would normally have available to you in a business context. You don't rate your performance on customer satisfaction, at least not in the same way that a business would. Because if we're believers and we're trying to orchestrate a godly household, really our customer satisfaction is more boss satisfaction. We're thinking, is he pleased with the results? Where in a business, the CEO or the, uh, the board or somebody like that, they're mostly thinking, is our product selling? Our customers happy? Will they come back? Here's another real big one is that a lot of the best decisions you'll make in the moment for your family are not going to be necessarily the most efficient decisions you could have made. They're not going to be the most profitable, probably not real business savvy. But because you're looking at a bigger picture or you're trying to accomplish a bigger goal, you might have to make a really bad business decision in your family in order to salvage something else. So you can't really make a comparison all the way through with what a a manager in a business would do. And your bonus certainly isn't received quarterly or by commission or something along those lines. They just don't reward you that way. In fact, families usually cost you money, and you wonder what it's all worth when you try to boil down the dollars and cents and all that kind of stuff. There's a delayed gratification that happens in a family that you don't necessarily want or expect in business. You don't want to wait 20 years to see your business returns finally mature. You don't want to necessarily wait until on your deathbed to see if your business was a success. But in a family, that's often what we're waiting for, aren't we? We wait to see how our kids turn out. We wait to see uh, when we stand before the Lord in glory that he says, well done, you did what I, you did double of what I gave you, and you returned a profit on my investment. Sometimes we have to wait to hear that because all along the way, it's like, are we really screwing this up? Are we doing the right thing by our kids? Are we running this thing well? The good news is, regardless if you're thinking business or you're thinking house, you can see the results of a bad manager. You're going to see, for one thing, there's a lack of results. Things aren't coming off the assembly line as well as they used to, or the product is breaking, or the kids are rebelling, or whatever the case may be. Those results will end up being evident very, very quickly. 
You'll also, as you study the people that are involved in the business or in the family or something, there's a very low morale. You see that, okay, something's not working because people aren't too excited about being a part of this thing, whatever it is. And there's also a real high turnover. So if your kids are saying, okay, I'm checking out, you can adopt my next replacement if you want. I'm moving along or something. But in business, you see if there's bad management in place, people don't want to be around long, so they're just coming through and moving out real quickly, and that just happens. Good managers, though, have noticeable output. Things start to to come off the assembly line a little bit better quality, maybe a little bit more rapidly, and things are more efficient. There's better team energy. People want to stick around and be a part of the team longer. They stay. They're experiencing new personal achievements. They, they have new goals that they're achieving even within the organization. And so a lot of these things, we can look at our household and say, okay, Lord, which picture are we portraying in all of this? So in a, in a crude way, we're going to continue a little bit with this business analogy as we move through just a couple of key points. Now, obviously, there's a lot of departments, and there aren't, these aren't really departments in our household, but there are a lot of departments in our household, and I don't have the time to expound on all of them. So I'm just going to pick the three kind of biggest ones that most of us have run into or are still running into and trying to figure out how to manage them. And the first, I'll just state the obvious. We're talking about marriage. The passages of Scripture we're going to use are the obvious ones. They're going to be the most readily accessible. If you ever say, well, I want some good verses on marriage, this one's going to come right to the top of the heap. When we talk about parenting, I want some good verses on parenting. That one's going to come right to the top of the heap and so on. Because it is simple. This isn't rocket science. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, that's the obvious one. Most of us have heard that over and over and over again. If you've been a part of a Christian wedding with a biblical pastor who's leading it, chances are either in the pre-marriage counseling or in the ceremony itself, that verse has been shared. And the proof of us carrying this out, men, if we really are going to be husbands who love our wives like Christ loved the church, which was littered with sacrifice, which the example was... The threat of it all was how much he was laying down for the good of his bride. Then the proof for us is how are we balancing the responsibility to do that with the authority that's been placed on us to lead our homes well. So I'm going to throw out another very accessible verse for us to help balance out what it means to lead faithfully in the house. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, in the same way, he had just kind of gone on a mini sermon talking about, wives, this is what's effective. If your husband's being a punk and he's not listening to the Lord and you need to win him back, this is how you do that. And so he goes through the instruction in verses 1 through 6. But when he comes to verse 7, he says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I, I always like to throw out the cultural friction that happens in verses like this, because like, really, Pastor, weaker? You know, are you saying I can't take it? Hey, listen, I've watched my, my wife deliver nine children. Did I say nine? Still sinks in a little slower every time. So I, I would not call her wimp, you know, she is not a wimp. But the way I've tried to kind of wrap my brain around this is if I have if I have a table 
you know, just a, a really nice kind of like a lamp table or something like that. And I go out and buy a vase because it's like now it needs a centerpiece and I want to put this really decorative thing on there. I'm not going to go out and buy a, a two-by-four structure, something that looks kind of rough. I know a lot of you guys would be disappointed that we wouldn't come home with a two-by-four structure that's kind of hammered in crudely and everything. But if you want to put something on that table, you're going to put a vase. You don't expect that vase, based on the money you spent on it, based on the design on that vase, you don't expect that vase to handle the same uh, uh, pressure, the same um, uh, abuse that the two-by-four is able to handle. Instead, what you would do is you'd make sure that the table's in a safe place in the room. You'd make sure the vase is set off the edge instead of having it half on the edge. And so when the kids are running by and they knock the the table, then the, the vase falls off. That's kind of what I think Peter's getting at when he says, your wives are weaker. They are more delicate in so many ways that instead, if you're going to live with her in an understanding way, it's like taking her on the table and saying, well, I didn't go out and try to find the, the two-by-four constructed ugly sculpture i wanted to find a beautiful fragile vase and it has other qualities that i could never replace if it were to break and so peter's trying to get us to see that if we're going to live with them if we're going to be the heads of our household we have to be considerate and set it back so that we're not causing unnecessary damage to the gift that's been given to us he says treat them with respect as the weaker partner But also, as a sister in the Lord, you know, she's going to have the same inheritance you're going to get from God. So he's saying, she's my daughter too. And so, you know, if you picture uh, two guys going fishing, father, stepfather, I mean, uh, uh, father-in-law, and they go fishing and everything, and the the father-in-law says, so, uh, new son, tell me how it's going with my daughter. I want to hear how things are happening. And they're casting lines, and they're just floating and just enjoying the day. And, and, And the son says... Well, you know, it's it's really funny because, you know, we had our typical first year rocky start and things were going, you know, all crazy and everything. But I took care of the situation. I finally figured out if I just give her one of these, she shuts right up. What do you think father-in-law is going to do? He's going to look to the shorelines to see if there's anybody of authority that could stop what's about to happen. And that guy's going to sleep with the fishes, isn't he? So. God is saying, you're going to be careless with my daughter and then come and pray. And Lord, bless my life, bless my checkbook, help my car to run. I really want this. I want my football team to win. And he says, you come and you talk casually to me, like things between us are okay, because you're my son. And I know what you're doing to my daughter. It's not going down well. So God is saying, you cannot come to me with that kind of blind spot in your life. Treat her with respect. So let me give you just two Powerful practical principles for good marriage management. Sorry if you're in the front row still. Here's the suggestion. These are easier said than done, but if you are thinking, what should I do next, start researching how to do this. Form a team with your spouse. And this is not strictly based on her cooperation. If your first answer to me is if I say form a team with your spouse, and you're like, yeah, she won't let me, you're already losing the battle. Figure out how do I win her to my side? How do, how, how do I pay attention to how I get on her team? But form a team with your spouse. Make her the priority over the kids. Let me just say that again. Make her the priority over the kids. 
One more time. Uh, make her. It's hard, though, isn't it? Because the kids are always cute. Listen. We are not always pleasant with each other, are we? The difference is, is that when our kids are little hellions, we've seen how cute they are when they sleep. And even when they're just like clawing, whatever, there's this thing in a parent's back of their mind where they're like, but if you saw them sleep, they're so cute. We give our kids much longer leashes in terms of forgiveness and repair and restoration than we do with our spouses. Why? Because we're both adults and sometimes we go at each other. Maybe they don't treat me with this same kind of respect that I think I need. We expect it from the kids, but not from another adult. If you make her the priority, what you've just done is you've built security in her, obviously, because she knows she's being paid attention to. But the kids start going. They stop asking, who's in charge here? They start going, dad's got mom's back. They build security in them. Quickly, we got to move on because I'm running out of time. Don't look at your watches because I've already run out of time. Uh, parenting. Talked about marriage. The obvious verse, Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. And that sounds great in theory, right? But so many of us have tried when our kids have, or were young, and then they end up walking out of the church. And there's a lot of reasons for this. First off, we can't hold somebody accountable for how every single child always turns out because they are individuals too. We have seen parents do the right thing for many years and things not go so well. But above and beyond, or I should say the general order of things should be that if you train your child in the way that they should go, when they eventually grow up and figure things out, and sometimes we have to watch a lot of nastiness for a period of time, but eventually they'll come back and say, I knew mom and dad was right. I was just being a punk. I had to do things my way. And so we have a prodigal situation that happens. But I'm not going to speak to those once in a while things. Instead, what we should be thinking about is if we really focus on what's best for the child, it's got to go beyond, well, I got them in Sunday school. I, I was raised in an environment where I had all myself and all my friends, we were all brought up in Sunday school, and so few of us ever turned out to really stick with the church and things of the Lord. And, and as best as my wife and I can figure it out, because she saw all the same stuff, the best we can figure out is if mom and dad were the type of people to be in church and amen and you go preacher and all this kind of stuff. And then when they got home, there was somebody completely different. Or if they just put unrealistic standards on the kids that they themselves figured do as I say, not as I do kind of thing going on. The kids eventually said, well, this whole God thing is, is like a social club. And if you look good on, in church on Sunday morning, I don't need to go to church on Sunday morning to look good. I can do that somewhere else. And so they're bailing in droves. So the Lord says, do it in a way that they should go so that when they're old, they won't depart from it. Who's in charge in the house? Who do the kids really belong to? Who are they responsible to? If your answer was, okay, I know you're trying to say it's the husband and the, and the wife, then that's the wrong answer. That's too low. Who's in charge? Who do the kids belong to? Who are they ultimately responsible to? The returning master, the one who's going to look for what's the return on my investment. We're raising our kids. We're trying to produce good kids, not so that people in public circles will say what a great job we've done, not so that they'll be on the honor roll so that we can say we did our job as parents, not so that they can um, you know, serve in the church in noticeable ways. We don't do it for any of those reasons. If we're doing it for those reasons, we're selling those kids short. Eventually, they'll see through the facade. They'll say, there's nothing in this for me. But we, show, we do these things. We produce good kids for the Lord. We're managers of God's kids. 
So there's four powerful practical principles for good parenting management. All right, I've got to do this quick. I know this is going to cause questions. So, yeah, we'll see what the Lord does with this. Go strict early in order to be able to let go of things later on. I don't know how many two-year-olds, tiny two-year-olds I see pulling their parents around by the nose. Now, look, I'm in the same camp as you. I think they're all cute almost all the time. And it's really hard when they come up with something sassy from such a tiny little body not to go, wow. How did they come up with that or that attitude or whatever? But we do all of our adoring of our little kids' attitudes in private. We don't do it in front of them. The first thing they get from us when they go, no, or something is a just as forceful as you will never talk with. And then later on, my wife, can you believe that came out of that little punk? And, and so it's cute. But so many parents early on are just like, well, that's just terrible twos. Well, that's just this and that. I mean, you can get control early. If you're strict early and you do consistent, get off the couch, the older I get and the younger my kids still are, it's harder for me to do this. But if you get off the couch and go down the hall and deal with the freaking out and do all that sort of, you do that a lot, then after a while you feel like, man, I'm not really on my kids once they're 8, 9, 10 years old. I hardly do any of that stuff. And so my advice from personal experience, I don't know how others have done it, is if you go strict early, you're probably giving yourself an opportunity to relax a little bit more and deal with principles and education that way when they get older. Discipline based on consistency first, results second. Don't do things just based on whether it worked the first try or not. Do the right thing so that your kids say, okay, this is probably what the response is going to be. I should probably expect that. And then later on, if it's not working, then change strategies. But be consistent for a while. Raise kids other people want to be around, not just you. You've seen them when they sleep, and they're cute. But everyone else has to see them while they're awake. <laughs> raise children that you want other people to go, hey, can your kids come over? But also, as they get older, fight hard to insert relationship regardless of behavior. I know that's tough when you just want to flick their little heads off. But find, I'm just being honest, uh, find opportunities to still love your kids regardless of how much discipline. With really bad kids or really consistent behavioral problems, it is so tough for a parent to find the emotional strength to say, Let's just go out for an ice cream together. Or let's, and we're not going to talk about the problem. We're not going to do Let's just try to remind each other that we love each other, even though we've got this other big thing to solve. All right. So that's where we're at with that. I've got to wrap this up. Let me just say this, that the reason why this is such a big deal to the Lord, the reason why this has to be a hallmark of the leadership of the church is because in verse 5 it says, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God. Um, your leaders are not going to be perfect parents. What we're going to try to be is transparent as we make some successes and failures. But uh, a lot of our leaders have already raised their children. They're off and doing their things and stuff. Some of them are going to say, yep, we did a really good job. Or some are going to say, you know, you know it hasn't turned out exactly. How. We don't know. The point is, is that as God has given us the instruction to raise children the way they're supposed to go and manage our own households well, what did we do with the investment that was given to us? Are we, have we returned something that the Lord could come back and say, thank you for making this profitable for me? That's what we're striving towards. And so uh, we should be held to a higher standard as leaders. Our kids shouldn't be, but we should be. And so we want to try to honor that. Continue to pray for us. Even those of us that it looks like the job is already done, it's really not. 
So continue to pray for us. If you would, please stand. We'll close in prayer. Ask our ladies to uh, be dismissed, and uh, we'll turn things over to Jeff, who I unfortunately cut into his time majorly. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do. Thank you, God, for your grace and just the fact that you are a perfect parent and that you have given us the tools to be as well, but we already know that in sin we're not going to be. So your grace just covers all of that. Guard our children, keep them safe, but, Lord, more important than that, make them worshipers of you. Help us to be instruments to to throw gas on that fire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.